looking at the civil magistrate, um, their duty to God, under God in his divinity, but specifically under the reign of Jesus Christ. And we have seen that they have a duty, scripturally, to administer God's justice in any nation or jurisdiction which they are over, and a duty to legislate God's law. From Scripture, we didn't mean by that that they take the Old Testament law verbatim and apply it to a nation, that would be theonomy, but they do have a duty to know God's law, it's revealed in nature, it's revealed in Scripture, and Christ owns it in the Great Commission, that the nations are to be discipled and evangelized, and they are to obey all that I have commanded. So Christ by virtue of his resurrection and exaltation, has been rewarded by the Father and given the creation. Adam was over the creation in the covenant of works. Christ is now over the creation in the covenant of grace. There are a lot of people within that creation that are not Christ's by conversion. But... The covenant of grace does not only cover the church. It binds and holds the creation. And Christ will renew it, not get rid of it. He will destroy and renew it when he comes again. And we will live in that creation. The way he cleanses it is to shake the wicked out of it. He doesn't get rid of the creation. So he replaces Adam. And he covers that creation with his kingly dominion. Doing something Adam couldn't do by virtue of his person, as the Son of God, as the God-man. Now when he reigns like that, and is given these nations by the Father, given the creation, given every principality, power, and authority that exists except God himself, when Christ reigns that way as a man, there is nothing that is out with his authority at all. So of course the nations must administer his justice, and must legislate his law. And we see today that the civil magistrate flowing from that has a duty to sustain Christ's kingdom, to sustain it, to support it, to bless it. I want to see that from Isaiah 60, because there are great promises here that bring out that doctrine that we, we hold to uh, very closely in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Now, Isaiah is split into two halves. The first 39 chapters are the book of judgment. There are comforts and great promises, even about heaven, in that book. But overall, that is the book of judgment and warning to Israel and Judah concerning Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon being used by God to chasten and judge them. They are warned about that. The second book, chapter 40 to 66, are the book of comfort. They literally begin that way, these chapters. The hinge of Isaiah's, chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. Tell her that her warfare has ended. She has received double for her sins. The judgment's done. And in that book, now the judgment wasn't done when Isaiah wrote that. It hadn't even happened yet. He wrote it a couple of hundred years before it happened. But God, through Isaiah, recorded the whole thing as a manual, as a spiritual manual to be used by her once she came to her senses in Babylon. All the warnings were there. But Isaiah 40 to 66 is a book that you can open in Babylon, that you can open once you've come to your senses, as Daniel prayed, when he said, we and our fathers have sinned, the church is restrained, it's sifted, it's been refined in a furnace. How many were left that came back to Israel? Was it 70,000? I don't know the number. But it was a lot, it was the remnant that came back. And that's not some idea that a minister has come up with. The doctrine of the remnant is Isaiah's doctrine. That's one of the main themes of the book. This tree will be cut to the stump. 
God will violently cut down this apostate church, but a shoot will come out of it. It looks dead, but a green shoot will come out. That's Christ. And from that stump grows the remnant. They grow out of Christ. So you can read that when you're in Babylon. The temple's destroyed. The walls are destroyed. Jerusalem's destroyed. The church is derelict. We're in captivity to an ungodly people whose culture is diametrically opposed to our own. Daniel's given another name. The men are given other names. They're called to worship the Babylonian gods. What of the promises of God to us? Well, they can open Isaiah in Babylon. And it says, Arise, shine, your light has come. They'll bring your children from afar. All the Gentiles will bless you and surround Israel again. Why? Because she's repented. Now, as much as that promise was for Judah in Babylon, and it really was, it's only partially fulfilled in them, as most prophecies are in Isaiah. There is the immediate fulfillment in the, the prototype, which is Israel, Judah. It's fulfilled historically in them as a picture and parable for something greater. For when you read this, or Zechariah, or Malachi, these promises that are about Judah begin to be fulfilled, but then they, as you read them, they launch beyond what can be true of Judah. They launch into new covenant territory, and they are actually about the church. We know that from Isaiah. I mean, the next chapter, if I kept reading, reading, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me, or Meshach, he has messiahed me to preach good tidings to the poor. This is fulfilled in Jesus. It's in chapter 53 that the Messiah comes and is struck and suffers. Why? For their transgressions. For your transgressions and mine. As we'll see in this sermon, these things we hope for that the civil magistrate will do to our church, it's not because our church is wonderful or we're amazing Christians. The only reason God can bless us with the Gentiles blessing our church is because Christ was wounded for our fallen hearts right now, our lukewarmness, whatever it is that's causing the current state of affairs. Christ was wounded for those transgressions. He, he was covered in leprosy so that we wouldn't. He, there are stripes on his back so that there wouldn't be stripes and wounds on our back. He is crushed. And God is not going to crush his remnant church today. As weak as she is, and even when she falls into sin, if she repents and turns to him, she can count on the bank that's in heaven, that there is blessing within that bank that was not accrued by our obedience, but accrued by Isaiah chapter 53. That's why Isaiah 66 is possible. That's why Isaiah chapter 60 is possible. So remember that. It is about Judah, but it only comes into its own in the new covenant church. Israel never experienced the things we just read together in their fullness. They failed, and Christ had to change the church. Christ had to pour out his spirit. These things are for a time yet to come. Cyrus, we can see, is a magistrate who's used by God. He's even called the Christ in Isaiah 45. The same word that's used for Jesus in this prophecy. Isaiah says that he is the Lord's anointed that's his position as a magistrate. And he is the Lord's anointed because God selected him to use him to, in a partial way, use the Gentiles to bring Israel back. And that's what happened. The edict was written. This was official government action. This wasn't separation of church and state. This was the state legislating for the restoration of the church, the sanctuary, and the walls of Jerusalem. Cyrus did that. So you see that initial seed of fulfillment. But that's not what we're hoping for. We're hoping for it to be far wider, fuller, and even end with regeneration. But you see it partially fulfilled in Cyrus. But in our day, as we look to the rest of the 21st century, as we are here and we have these expectations, what should we expect? Well, we expect that God will use the civil magistrate in a very wide, all-permeating way to bless and sustain the church of Jesus Christ, his true church. Nothing less than that. And it comes out in our passage. I think there's three 
uh, hooks in this um, chapter that give us the structure of the passage. They are verse 3, 11, and 16. See what they say. You see the similarity between them. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your coming. Verse 11b, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. And verse 16, you shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. Do you see the similarity between those verses? That's the poetic genius of Isaiah, that you find things like this in all of the chapters of Isaiah. Um, his Hebrew writing is what is acknowledged to be the best Hebrew writing in the Old Testament. And you see it there. His, his theme and the parallelism. Each verse says, three times in the chapter, the Gentiles will do something, and then it's more specific, that the king of that Gentile nation will accomplish this. So it's the nation and the king. Here again, the nation will come to your light, the king to the brightness of your coming. Verse 11, the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. Verse 16, you shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. That word Gentile is just the word nation, peoples, people groups. In the Greek Bible, it would be ethnos. These are the groups that God divided in the table of nations. These groups are different. They have their own culture and so on. They've gathered themselves into states, and most of those states still remain to this day. Some people groups have even split into further states. And God is saying here, that those national entities and their kings will bless the church, will sustain the church. They will even serve him, the chapter says. And we're going to get into this a little bit. There's even things to do with worship here and acknowledging the truth of God and building up his church. So you see that when we say in the RP church, we should expect that the government of this nation and the head of state will come to the light and to the brightness of the church, bring all their wealth and their kings in an acknowledging procession that we will drink the milk of the provision of the nation and of the head of state itself. They say the king shouldn't be involved in the church. And the government cannot favor a church. And the government cannot enact it. The government cannot take its constitution and all of its institutions and make them all reformed and Christian. That's ridiculous. It will never happen. And it's not right. That's not the way the gospel spreads. The way the gospel spreads is that the state provides for complete freedom of expression and movement and that the church then evangelizes within that context. And may the best man win. And the, and the best man should win because we have the Holy Spirit, don't we? But no, it's not that simple. That's not what Jesus wants. The promise here is that the nation will acknowledge the church and sustain her. And that the nation will use its wealth and all of its resources and institutions for the good of Christ's church. But why should that be so? That doesn't sound right. Well, it is right when Jesus is the king of every nation. This is already his nation. It's in rebellion, but it's his. All the resources are his. He's the head of every university and government agency. He's the rightful head of every human institution. They owe him their allegiance. This, past, this chapter shows us that this is promised to the church. Just to establish that for you, um, that, that the nations must bless our church. That that's a biblical obligation. I just want to demonstrate, demonstrate it to you from, I think, four verses here. Um, for example, Psalm 22, verse 27. I'm not going to comment on these verses. I'm just going to, they're going to speak for themselves, these verses. Psalm 22, verse 27. This is what God determines and what's obligated to the magistrate. 
all ends of the world shall remember and turn to Jehovah. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is Jehovah's, and he rules over the nations. That's telling us that the nations and their magistrates have that obligation. Psalm 72, which we sung, Psalm 72, Kings verse 11. All kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. That could be translated worship. These are the same words. Shall serve or worship him. That's what's rightfully his, and it's promised here that it will happen. Now notice the words. It's the same as Isaiah. Kings shall fall before him. Then the parallel. All nations shall serve him. There's the two words again. The nation as an entity and all of its institutions and structure and the head of state and the government shall bow before him and worship Christ. There it is. It's a promise, but the promise lays on an obligation. I mean, if, it's the, if the worship's rightfully his, then the magistrate right now, President Biden, is obligated to make this happen. The authority of scripture is binding upon him. Uh, Isaiah 19, verse 19. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 19. <clears throat> Verse 19 to 22. Isaiah 19, 19 to 22. Hear these words from God. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors and he will send them a savior and a mighty one and he will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they shall make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. And they will return to the Lord. And he will be entreated by them and heal them. Now that, that's simply regarding Egypt. But Old Testament prophecies are like this. God tells Judah that Egypt, Philistia, Babylon, it will just mention about seven nations around them. This is what will happen to them, but that's meant to be a prototype for all the nations. Egypt here is not a group of people who are born again in Egypt. It's the nation of Egypt that will build an altar to the Lord. The nation of Egypt will make a sacrifice, and the nation of Egypt will make a vow or an oath to the Lord and perform it. Isaiah says this knowing that Egypt is Israel's mortal enemy. They will come. Lastly, Psalm 68, verse 29. Psalm 68, verse 29. Let's read from verse 31, sorry. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth, or sing praises to the Lord. Now that's a direct prophecy. It's not that a church will flourish in Ethiopia and some Ethiopians will stretch out their hands to God. Ethiopia will stretch out her hands to God and envoys will be sent by the Egyptian state to the kingdom of Christ. In other words, there's a treaty. There's even a subservience and an acknowledgement these are just Old Testament prophecies that show us that nations as political entities are to bless Israel. Now when I say Israel, I mean the church. Let's leave the political things to do with Israel today out of this for the moment. They are to bless God's Israel, God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom. And it's not that we're just to evangelize some people in these nations. Reformed Presbyterians understand that we are to evangelize the nations themselves. Nations will serve Christ. And their envoys will serve him. And their kings, heads of state, and governments will serve him. 
So I'm establishing there that the nations and kings are obligated to do it. I want to simply tell you for a moment what it means that they are supposed to sustain the church and then give a few applications as to what that will look like. What does it mean and what does it look like? When it says in our text in Isaiah 60, you shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings, what exactly does that mean? And we take from our first reading that's parallel to this, that the kings shall be your foster fathers and queens shall be your nursing mothers. What does that actually mean? How far does that go? Well, I've titled the sermon that their duty is to sustain the Church of Christ. And I think sustain is a good word for it, connected to the word sustenance. That's the picture here. You know what the picture is of a mother breastfeeding a newborn child and that that child needs nourishment from another source and the child receives sustenance and comfort and warmth and protection from the mother. And Isaiah uses that image. He uses it of God elsewhere. He says that, can a woman forget her nursing child? Surely they will forget. I will not forget you, says the Lord. And just as God will not forget the believer, and he will nurse us, God says through Isaiah that the nation and the king is to do that to Christ's church. To sustain, to supply sustenance, to nourish and build up is the picture here. The Catechism puts it this way. I think it gives us words that help us hone in on the exact meaning of these kinds of verses. Listen to Westminster Larger Catechism 191. What do we pray for in the second petition? And I'll just read the parts that apply to us right now. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, mm -hmm. we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, and here it is, the church furnished with all gospel offices and ordinances, purged from corruption, and countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed. I think if you look up what text they used for that, it would be Isaiah 49. That, that's the truth that comes from these two texts and these two chapters. I'm saying that they must sustain the church. The Catechism describes that as countenancing and maintaining the church. We confess as a church that the civil magistrate must countenance and maintain the church, not provide an aquarium of freedom of religion and expression where anyone can do whatever they want. That's not the government's responsibility. It is to countenance and maintain Christ's church because he is Lord. That means to formally own, cherish, support, nourish, advance, and protect the church of Jesus Christ. Look how stark it is in our chapter. It's easy to miss it when you read through it, but these are words of devotion. These are religious concepts. It's not that they just provide some kind of political structure to allow the church to flourish. It's more than that. In verse 3, they come to the church's light. In verse 11, the kings make a procession. That's an official state action. That's ceremonial. They arrive in procession to pay homage, to acknowledge the authority of the church. That's the picture there. And at, the, at verse 12, worship or serve. The nation kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. This means they must avow God's truth. This means they must render homage of a formal and public recognition of Jesus' church, is what James Bannerman says. Now this is the establishment principle. This is the final thing I'm going to say that demonstrates that they're obligated to do this. Then we're going to quickly look at what that will look like practically right now. That's the establishment principle, which is that the church should be established in the nation and that the government has something to do with that. It's not Erastianism, which means that the government 
is above the church or holds sway over the church and uses the church as they see fit or the religious principles they see fit where they have bishops in the church that directly answer to the government. That's not the picture. We're not saying let's be Erastian and that the government comes in to meddle with all the worship and activities of the church. But neither are we saying that, that there's cross-contamination every time the government comes near the church. That if the government says anything about worship or doctrine, that that's wrong. That's, that's not what the Bible says. The government has a duty to make sure that the true church is established. It has a duty to make sure the truth is acknowledged in its nation for the good of its people. Truth matters. You live and die by its truth. It's heaven or hell. Of course the civil magistrate cannot just allow lies and false doctrine to permeate a nation then they're not doing their duty. That's not protecting your citizens. That is leaving them to error. How can the citizens milk the breast of the king if the king is giving them poison? He has an immense duty. Every nation ought to recognize the sovereignty of God, this is our testimony, exercised by Jesus Christ, and its duty to rule civil affairs of men in accordance with his will. It should come into covenant with Christ and serve and advance his kingdom on earth. That's what we believe. The government should come into covenant with Jesus. And its duty in America is to advance the apostolic gospel, what we would call today the Reformed gospel and the Reformed church. That's the true gospel. And the government has an obligation under Jesus right now to advance that gospel. The negligence, we say, of the civil government in any of these particulars is sinful and will make the nation liable to the wrath of God and threaten the continued existence of the nation. I'm glad it was generations before us that wrote our testimony because if we wrote, we're trying to write something today, I don't think we'd be that bold. But that's biblical. And I'm glad these men wrote it. For the government to not covenant the gospel threatens the existence of the United States of America. It's not good for America. The Bill of Rights that gives freedom of religion, that it sounds good, but it's not good for America. Imagine you said to your children, freedom of expression. I'll respect whatever you believe. That is not ruling and parenting. And the government should know the same. So we've seen, even just from the hook verses of this chapter, these great two words, nation and king, is coming to Israel, the church, and has an obligation under the Messiah of Isaiah's book to minister and come towards that church in a nurturing, supporting relationship and to avow the truth of God in Jesus Christ. And that when we pray for the kingdom to come, we are praying that this magistrate would countenance and maintain directly to give and help the church to flourish and spread the gospel. That establishes what the doctrine is here, that the civil magistrate has to do this. What does that look like? I want to give you some principles here. I'll give you, <coughs> I'll name the title of each one, and then I will say a few things about each one to demonstrate them. Well, in this countenance in maintaining, the first word is the gospel. They are to acknowledge the truth of God in the gospel. That is the particulars of salvation. The government should know that and support it. It's not enough for them to know that Christianity exists or that it's even maybe better for the nation than all the other religions and just say, well, we'll support the church because we're more of a Christian nation. No, they must acknowledge and avow the gospel itself. The Gentiles shall come to the light, verse 3 says, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The light from the church here is the gospel. It's any all the truth of God, all his attributes, all that God, the light that he has revealed in Scripture. And light is a big concept in Isaiah. Here is Jerusalem, the church, shining forth 
her testimony. God, the mediator, um, the covenant of grace, the attributes of the gospel, what repentance is, what marriage is, and so on and so on. We shine that light. We have, let praise God, we can criticize our denomination. There are weaknesses, sure. But we have a confession and testimony. Be thankful that we have these things. Oh, there are many, many churches in this land that have nothing like that. We're shining a light that's been shone in, in, in this form for 500 years, but it's been shone since Peter and Paul went out with it. It's them that said, honor the king, fear God. It's, it's them that taught about the magistrate's duty to the church. We are shining that light. And the magistrate has a duty to come to that light. See even in verse 6. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Hepha. These are all the resources of the nations. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Gentile nation king. The nation and king here are to proclaim the praises of Jehovah. You can't do that when you just countenance Christianity and kind of stand away from it. No. No, the White House should be praising Jehovah. And we know who Jehovah is. Who reveals Father, Son, and Spirit who are Jehovah. Who's Jehovah? Christ. The I Am. The King. The God-Man from whom soon all nations will flee away and cover their faces and ask for the mountains to cover them from the wrath of his coming. Jesus is Jehovah. He is to be taken seriously. He is the rightful king of this nation. His gospel goes out to give life to the citizens of this nation. And the government stands by and says, we don't need to give this to our citizens. We don't need to acknowledge this in our constitution. We don't need to mention him when prayer is made at the White House. The word doesn't need read in our annual meetings of Congress and so on. No, no, no. No, the Gentiles must acknowledge this light and they must proclaim, the magistrates, the praises of Jehovah. Jehovah must be praised on Capitol Hill. That's the vision of the Messiah. Verse 9. They'll bring your sons from afar their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God. That's what the nations and kings are to do, and will do one day. They must come to the name of Jehovah our God. Do you ever hear him mentioned in a presidential debate? Is he ever mentioned in any bill that's put before the Senate? Is, is the head of Congress, the head of the Senate, the Speaker of the House... When the vice president or the speaker in the house is on Capitol Hill and they're knocking the gavel on the authoritative platform with the, the symbols of Rome behind them showing the authority of the civil magistrate, is Jesus ever mentioned? Is the name of the Lord our God mentioned, the Holy One of Israel? That is what they are supposed to do. John Brown of Haddington says, when they are called a nursing father of the church, it is not only to procure for her some temporal goods, but to give what is far more necessary, spiritual and heavenly goods. He's saying there, this isn't about just giving the church money or buildings. There's a doctrinal aspect to this. How can you bless the church of Christ if you're not willing to acknowledge her testimony that Jesus is Lord? And how can you do good to your citizens? The magistrate has a spiritual duty is what I'm saying to every person in this country to tell them the truth. William Symington, King shall be thy nursing fathers is a similitude which imports the most tender care, the most endearing solicitude, not mere protection, but an active and unweedied nourishment and support. If, according to the opinions of some, the best thing the state can do is to leave her alone, to leave her to herself, to take no interest in her concerns, it's difficult to see how this view could ever be reconciled with the figure of a nurse. 
the magistrate is a nurse to the church and is to support her gospel. Second, the law. And I'm only going to mention the law because the whole sermon last week was the law. And I hope I proved it. The Congress has a duty to enact the principles of the laws of the gospel. They have an immediate obligation to enact practically the Ten Commandments. That is the law of reality, of heaven. It is the law of all the earth. It's the law of the old and new covenant church. And it is the law that binds every man. What is the duty God requires of man? Obedience to his revealed will. It's not Israel's law, and it's not the Christian's law. It is the law. There is no other law. Every other law attempts to emulate that law. It discovers principles in that law, even if the people aren't searching for it. But there is no good and just law that exists or that's been written down that is not from the stamped image of God in the heart and mind of man and his natural reason. The Ten Commandments cover it all. Congress has no less duty than to legislate and enact that law. They think that's laughable right now. And we should tremble for them. They don't know the God that they're messing with, that they ignore. But that law will judge them. And they will not be judged as a citizen. They will be judged as those who had immense power over over 300 million people. And they will answer for the oath of office they took when they placed their hand upon the Bible with that law inside it. They will be judged for that. The gospel and the law. There is also a magistrate's duty concerning other religions. When Isaiah says in the verses I keep quoting, the light, the praises of the Lord, um, the name of the Lord our God, they have no right to allow these other religions to flourish the way they do. Now I'm not talking about what people think in their homes or what people do in private, or maybe even meet together in a certain way. I can't untangle all of that right now. But what is true is that they cannot allow monuments of idolatry and false worship to be countenanced and supported and treated as though they're just as equal to a church. An argument could even be made that they shouldn't allow them to be built at all. They ought to prevent and remove profaneness, idolatry, superstition, and heresy, and every other thing which tends to hinder the pure worship of God. They shouldn't countenance false religion. Westminster Larger Catechism 108. One of the duties of superiors and those who have authority is that according to our own place and calling, to vow unto God and to detest, oppose, and remove all false worship and all monuments of idolatry. So we may not have the part of the confession of faith that says that the civil magistrate should call synods and get really involved in the church. And there's a reason for that. But the catechism maintains, and we still confess this, that those who have authority in their place of calling, they have a positive duty to remove idolatry. False religions shouldn't just allow their places of worship and so on. It's arguable that they shouldn't even be allowed to be built. Now, we don't police people's thoughts. We don't persecute people for believing wrong things. We don't hurt them in that way. But what the Bible envisages is a national, Messiah-honoring nation where when you go around, you see Christianity everywhere. You see churches everywhere. You see the government always speaking positively about the Reformed Church and them all going to a Reformed Church. Members of a Reformed Church under a session themselves. That's what the Bible envisages. And it's graciously and wisely opposing these monuments of idolatry and removing them. We explain to them what true worship is and the thirst within them. And we tell them to go and call their husband or whatever it might be. And we give the gospel. Jesus isn't interested in, in petty interreligious bigotry. But the gospel must shine in there and you're to give no quarter to a false place of worship. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter on liberty of conscience, deals with the government's duty to oppose false doctrine and idolatry. They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, publish such opinions or maintain such practices, contrary to the light of nature and the known principles of Christianity, in faith, worship, or conversation, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions and practices that are destructive to the external peace and order 
that Christ has established in his church may be lawfully called to account and proceeded against by censures by the church or by the power of the civil magistrate. Well, let's just sum that up. That's not the best worded paragraph in uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Those who publish opinions and maintain practices contrary to biblically reformed faith, worship, lifestyle, and who deny the power of godliness, or have any erroneous opinions and practices that they express publicly that hinder the church or erode the church in any way, the church and the magistrate have the right to stop them, to censure that. We don't have time to go into the hundred things we would have to say to explain and qualify that. But I want you to know it's there. There's a view in this nation that the civil magistrate has no business doing anything like that. Westminster Confession of Faith says they do. So the gospel, the law, other religions. They are to uphold the true church and support her in connection with that. Faith, worship, church government. Listen to James, ba uh, James Bannerman. They are to avow the truth of God, to render homage of a formal and public recognition of the church that he established on earth is a duty, as we believe a universal obligation to be discharged by a Christian state at all times and under all circumstances. And as this chapter says in verse 10, the sons of foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. They are to build up the church. In verse 13, remarkably, the glory or the wood of Lebanon, I think that's the idea there, the cypress, pine, and box tree will be brought to beautify the place of my sanctuary. That's religious. For the Lebanese at the time, it was, we'll provide wood, we'll pay homage to Israel, and the king of Tyre did that to Solomon. But this is a picture, spiritually in the New Testament church, of the nation and its magistrates, those kings arriving to the church and being interested in the state of the sanctuary. That it's in order, that Israel has all that it needs to worship God as he commanded. The temple was destroyed when they were in Babylon. And that temple needed rebuilt. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls. It shouldn't just be upon us to develop the church and make sure it's provided for. The magistrate has a duty to that. How unknown that is today. President Biden has a duty to the Reformed Church because it belongs to Jesus. And he's under Jesus. He doesn't know right now he has that duty. But it is there, I would say, not just general support, but to take an interest in the order of worship true worship is done. They don't have an ultimate authority over that to interfere with it. But if they see churches apostatizing and doing things in worship that are clearly not scriptural, the magistrate has a right to say something. Even here they provide for worship in verse 6 and 7. The camels come, Midian, Ephah, Sheba, they bring gold and incense. Why do they bring incense? It's going to be offered in the temple. Verse 7, their flocks are gathered together. These are high-quality flocks. The ram of Naboth, they shall minister to you, and they shall ascend with acceptance on my altar. The foreign nation and its kings and leaders make financial provision so that worship can be done, and they bring their own animals, and those animals are offered in worship. That means that Capitol Hill should be concerned that worship is offered to Jehovah in the way that he's commanded. That matters. So you have the gospel, the law, other religions, the true church being supported. Francis Tarleton says about this church that in being a nursing father to it, the magistrate must not only give temporal goods, I've told you that, but spiritual and heavenly goods. They ought therefore to conduct themselves as servants of God, promoting his glory above all things, and taking care that their subjects pay him the due tribute. And he even says this, and the tax for his lawful and true worship. Cariton is saying there, there should, there should even be a tax. And in the inception of America, before the Bill of Rights, before the, the amendment that said no established religion, most of the states had a tax. It was then to be used for the church. Some people think that's anathema today. I'm at least willing to suggest it. It makes sense. The Lord's Day. I'm going to say two more things here and we'll close. The Lord's Day. You already know from last week's sermon, they have an obligation because of the commandments to legislate the Lord's Day. And I gave you examples from Maine and Michigan and even Pennsylvania and Ontario that up until the last century had active Lord's Day's laws. It's not weird. 
Germany still has them. Scotland had them. Geneva had them. And there are more. Now, I'm not mentioning the Lord's Day just so that the, the government can be obedient to it. The church cannot be built up and the gospel cannot flourish. In the fullness of chapter 60, with its light permeating the whole earth, that can't happen without a state Lord's Day. It can't happen. Who's going to be in church? When are you going to be nourished and challenged about your sin? When are you going to hear a converting, regenerating gospel? When are you going to have brothers and sisters who keep you in check and you learn from their example? I shouldn't be doing this. My life practice isn't correct. I can see this. There are so many lost souls out there. They've never had two moral parents. They've never had piety in their home. They've never sat in a reformed church that reverenced God. They've never had the grace of Jesus Christ and the fear of Jesus Christ properly explained to them. They don't know how good the Lord's Day is for a soul. And the Lord's Day is the soul of a nation. It's a creation ordinance. Without rest physically and spiritual rest, and even more importantly, without worship, how can a nation prosper? And how can the church do its job? So the Capitol Hill is looking at the RP church right now and saying, you're free, go and do your evangelism and your worship on the Lord's Day. And we're saying, we're like the Egyptians. We're making bricks without straw. Everyone's out there entertaining themselves. It's called normal. It's completely normal. They're in darkness. Places of entertainment and sport all open. False churches doing stupid things in the so-called worship of God. If one of these people ever wanders into a church, Capitol Hill has a responsibility under God to put this right. Now, it seems ridiculous right now that they would pass a law like this. But I've read church history, and I've seen God do a lot of ridiculous things. I'm not saying it'll happen tomorrow, but by saying that, I'm not saying I'll wait 50 years. I'm not even telling you it's possible. I'm saying it can realistically happen through our prayers, through the church's preaching, through writing to the civil magistrate. How many Christians sit there in an RP covenanter huddle arguing about how evil Christmas is? And they've never written to the civil magistrate about the Lord's Day. We have an obligation. Nancy Pelosi doesn't know what we believe on this. And yes, she's responsible. But I'm responsible too. I know. I just can't see this happening unless we as believers write to the local magistrate, write to the House, write to the Senate, write to the President, the Vice President. It doesn't take that long to write a letter. And you just keep sending it and sending it and sending it. I feel our synod should have a civil magistrate engagement committee whose only job it is to write to Washington, D.C. and all of those powers on these matters that come up. Not to start arguments. Material that has light on it. How can they come to the light if they've never seen the light? Shine the light. And, and then complain about blindness. But let Christ open their eyes. But the light has to be shone. There's a very good logical case to be made for the health of a nation and the health of souls regarding the Reformed Gospel on the Lord's Day. The immense amount of antidepressants and so on. All that stuff. The misery of people. We have a good argument. We, we have Christ behind us. We should say something. The Lord's Day. What it would be like. Imagine everything is shut on the Lord's Day. There's peace and quiet. And the civil magistrate from the President's own briefing room in the White House is commending the Reformed Gospel in church to people every single week as an official statement of the government. Imagine the strength ministers would receive, and it's right that we should stand in strength before an opposing magistrate, but imagine the strength the ministry would receive when the state has acknowledged that the Gospel is true. That's the magistrate and the church pulling at the same oars. The Lord's day on this matter is very important. Lastly, as I close, national institutions. In light of all that, I hope you see from this 
that they should turn their whole resources to the propagation of the gospel in the nation. Not just because it's good, it is their official obligation to do this. We are told in this chapter they are to bring their wealth, all the wealth of the Mediterranean, that means all the money you make from all the fish and everything that's caught, it means all the ships of Tarshish, all of the modes of government, all the mechanics of government, incense is to be brought. They're to physically take the daughters and the sons of this nation and bring them to where they need to be. They are to build up the sanctuary with their wood. They are to provide this nourishment, wealth and riches that all the resources of the American government should be concerned with the prospering of the Reformed Church in this nation. That even means things like its universities, its schools, its social services, its marriage and family counselling, all of the church's social ministries should be supported, all of its mercy ministries, hospitals should be Christian, the military should be Christian. All of these environments that are official institutions in this nation, the magistrate has an obligation to make sure that they are all Christian and that they all profess officially the Reformed Gospel. Now imagine what that would be like. This idea that universities today are good because you can have any belief you want is utter nonsense. These are young people who need their ideas formed. They shouldn't be coming up with their own ideas. They shouldn't be just expressing whatever they feel. They are to be taught that there is an objective standard from the God who made them and that there is only one truth, one gospel, and that their souls have needs. That goes for the schools and everything else I mentioned. Imagine all the social, social services go into people's homes. They, they're Freudian. They, they use all of that to treat people. These people are miserable. They're fighting each other. Families are being pulled apart. Children are being abused and all of this. And God isn't mentioned. Sin isn't mentioned. Forgiveness isn't mentioned in the context of the gospel. I don't know what else to say apart from to tell these politicians that have authority than to tell them that they will answer on Judgment Day before Christ for the fact that they went in to these destitute homes and lives and didn't even mention the one thing that should have been mentioned. How foolish we are. So as much as you love your nation and patriotism, there are things we're taught from when we're young about freedom about equality and some of them sound good but some of them are quite wrong we don't live in a secular democracy reality itself though we've built one we live under a monarch there is a king and every nation and every king on this earth has an obligation to acknowledge the lord jesus christ and to sustain his church may god make this happen